you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Future Mac here. So, last episode's Future Mac, who I guess I will now refer to as Past Mac, jumped the gun a little bit in cutting this in two. See, I had a three-hour recording in front of me and figured, hey, I'm a little more than an hour in. I assume the the remaining two hours aren't just us talking about other things, so this is a good place to stop and call it an episode. Turns out, we were pretty close to the end of the actual story. You'll get the end of the story, which comes in a strange, abrupt, and moderately absurd way in about ten minutes. And then we spend most of our time talking about some really interesting articles that Zoe found. So, if I'd been on the ball, I would have split up the episodes a little later so that you'd have one episode that was all story and then one episode that was all commentary, instead of this current situation where you have a semi-cliffhanger at the end of last episode and then the remainder of the story at the beginning of this one. So, I apologize for my past sloppiness in cutting this episode. Also, it turned out that like an hour of that recording was us stopping to look things up or other distractions like the dog needing to go out. So this episode is itself just over an hour. Regardless, I hope you enjoy the, again, absurd ending of the Toyn Bakuling and our subsequent discussions about such things as, what is this spear Kakulin has anyway? What is a gay bulga? The answer may surprise you. Anyway, a very interesting part here. Kukulin overtook Maeve then when he went into battle. Protect me, said Maeve, though I would slay thee with a slaying if it were lawful for me, said Kukulin. <laughs> okay, did he say slay thee with a slaying or a sling? Yes, a slaying. It's gonna kill her to death. Oh, yes. <laughs> but here's where it gets more interesting, because that's the Faraday version. Let me jump over to the Don version, which is in more detail and is a little bit more accurate to the original text here. So, remember how I said the Toyn is a very weird text? Yes, I think you've been thoroughly demonstrating this. <laughs> oh, yes. Just just reminding everyone, because, Howbeit, there is no help for me, said Maeve, for I shall not live if I do not void water. I mean, that's how Tico Brahe died. Maeve voided her water so that it made three large dikes so that a mill could find room in each dike. Hence, the place is known as Fuel Maevefach, that is, Maeve's water. Now, depending on how you translate this, she either has to pee in the middle of battle, Mm -hmm. or, and this is what the text kind of indicates, she starts her period in the middle of battle. Oh, I definitely interpreted it as the first one. Yes. Which, that is a very heavy period if, you know, you're filling up dikes. I mean, that's a heavy anything. Yes. If you can power a mill on your bodily secretions. Yes, exactly. So. Also, to be clear to listeners, in this context, a dike is a ditch. (laughs) I can't believe we have to specify this. <laughs> I mean, there are at least three definitions, and it's got to be clear. 
This is true. Okay. Cuculain came upon her as she was thus engaged on his way to the battle, and he did not attack her. He would not strike her a blow from behind, and he also spared her because it was not his wont to slay women, which is just totally untrue. Did he untrue. just do that, like, ten minutes yes. ago? Yes. Oh, they, don't, they didn't count. They were just peasants. I guess. I don't know. Spare me, cried Maeve. If I should slay thee... If it were just for me, Cucullin answered, arise from hence, for I deem it no honor to wound thee from behind with my weapons. I crave a boon of thee this day, O Cucullin, said Maeve. And he's like, what do you want now? You're my enemy. That the host be under thine honor and thy protection till they pass westwards over the great ford. Yea, I promise that, said Cucullin. Then went Cucullin round the men of Aaron, and he undertook shield defense on one side of them in order to protect the men of Aaron, that is to say, the Connachtmen, that is to say, his enemies. So why why does Honor demand that he do this? I don't know. Because it seems like like she just asked nicely and he's like, I guess I gotta. Like that doesn't make any she's sense. Because she's a lady, she is unarmed, and she started her period. I will give her that she is female. I'm not sure I'd describe Maeve as a lady. That's valid. She's very unladylike. But apparently, that is exactly what goes on. That is literally how this battle ends. Like, there is there is not a lot of to-do after this, because then the battle was broken, and Maeve said to Fergus, Faults have been made today, O Fergus. It is customary, said Fergus, to every herd which a mare proceeds after a woman who has consulted who has ill-consulted their interest. So he's basically saying, like, yeah, you're an idiot. You've been an idiot this entire time. Yeah. They take away the bull then, that morning of the battle, so that oh, he met it. the... Yes! So that he met the white-horned at Targbaga. I'm not pronouncing that whatsoever. That's way too long. Anyway, the red bull meets the white cow, and... Nope, they're both bulls. They take the bull away. So that the name of the hill was Roy Durand. Okay. And everyone who escaped the fight was intent on nothing but beholding the two bulls fighting. Because, at long last, at the end of all of this, he came with the rest to see the combat of the bulls. The two bulls went fighting over Brikriu so that he died therefrom. That is the death of Brikriu. So, this guy... Just some guy... Just got ran over <laughs> by the bulls. Yeah. Recreate yep. is old Irish for bystander. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the foot of the Dunculing lighted on the horn of the other. For a day and a night, he did not draw his foot towards him till Fergus incited him and plied a rod along his body. Twere no good luck, said Fergus, that this combative old calf which has been brought here should leave the honor of clan and race, and on both sides men have been left dead through you. Therewith he withdrew his foot so that his leg was broken, and the horn sprang from the other and was in the mountain by him. That's why this place gets its name. He carried then, that is to say, the bull carried then a journey of day and night till he lighted in the loch, which is by Kruken, and he came to Kruken out of it with the loin and the shoulder blade and the liver of the other on its horns. Then the hosts came to kill him. Fergus did not allow it, but that he should go where he pleased, that is to say, the bull. Then he came to his land and drank a draught in the river upon coming there. It is there that he left the shoulder blade of the other one. And that is why it has the name Finletha. 
He drank another draught in Athluan. He left the loin of the other there, hence it is Athluan. He gave forth his roar on another place, and it was heard throughout all the province. He drank a draught in Tomra. And then the liver... Didn't we just leave the liver? No, he caught the liver on the horns. Anyway, the bull drops the liver of the other bull in Troma. And he goes to another place. There he used to be with the milkless milkless cow of Diary, and he made a trench there. Hence, it is Gortburg. Then he went and died between Ulster and Evach at Drum Tarib. Alilan Maeve made peace with the Ulstermen and with Cacullan. For seven years after, there was no wounding of men between them. Finnevar stayed with Cacullan, and the Connachtmen went to their country, and the Ulstermen to Emain Macha with their great triumph. Finit, Amen. I kind of like that apparently the red bull and the white bull cancel each other out like matter and antimatter. I think it's hilarious. So that is, yeah, eventually both bulls die, yeah. which I believe you can read. Historically, you can read uh, a metaphor into it that like both sides of Ireland are not better for this because oh, Cacolan oh. eventually also, you know, has to die of him, of his great struggles. But that is the Toyn. That was certainly a series of events. A very long, strange series of events. And a very needless series yeah. of events, in my opinion. There's, there's a lot of points where it's just like, I don't see how that follows. I don't see why, why you're making these decisions. I know, it doesn't make any sense. I do kind of like that the whole battle ends because Maeve's like, I gotta either pee or some kind of bio break. <laughs> You know, BRB, bio break, Kukulin, make sure that my, my people and I don't get hurt in the meantime. And he's like, I guess I gotta. And that's the end of the battle. Uh, yeah, I mean, Kukulin turns Fergus away because he's like, I've already killed one of my kinsmen. I don't want to have to kill you. Mm. And Maeve decides that her period is more important than actually winning this war. Which, as a woman, I can understand, but... As not a woman, I can understand because it's a dumb <laughs> war. Most things should be taking precedence. So on this point, there's a couple of interesting technical research bits. So let me pull up my notes on these. Okay. Got it. So the first one of these is astounding. I had a lot of fun with it. It is written by Edward Petit, and it is Kukulin's Gay Bulga from Harpoon to Stingray Spear. And essentially what Petit argues is that the Gebolga could be a type of stingray spear. That is to say, you use the tail, the, the dart of a stingray to create a spear out of it. I, I was going to ask, are you saying it is a spear like the tail of a stingray or it is a spear for killing stingrays? It is from the tail of a stingray. Oh, it's actually made from. Yes. Oh, those things are nasty. They are horribly nasty, and apparently there are stingrays in Irish waters, which I did not know. I didn't either. Right? So, first off, what I want to go over is he goes through some of the etymologies of these names. So, quote, Kukulin's most famous weapon, the Gebolga, is a long-standing enigma. The meaning of the spear's name and its origin, physical form, and method of use pose questions which generations of scholars have failed to agree upon answering. A shortcoming of the many previous explanations has been a failure to look much beyond the word Gebolga, which is very true, 
and consider the numerous other details preserved about this weapon, probably because most of the contributions have been brief. There is, to my knowledge, no single study dedicated to the Gabolga. I attempt to itemize the characteristics of this weapon and its use, and argue that at least in the 17th century, it was probably imagined as a spear tipped by the codwell spine or spines of a stingray. Whether this concept of the Gabolga was current in medieval Ireland is doubtful. The stingray association may well have developed later, perhaps partly to explain some of the weapon's highly peculiar characteristics in the medieval texts. Key to the weapon's proposed identification, at whatever stage, as a stingray spear, are similarities between a Greek myth that features such a spear and Irish episodes involving Cucullin and the gay Volga. And I think it's a fairly strong argument, but what I really wanted to go through, well, in part, was some of the different ways people have translated the word gay bolga. So, quote, all commentators agree that gay, the first word, which is a G-A-E, the first word in Gabolga means spear or dart, as it does many times elsewhere in medieval Irish texts, though specifically meaning spearhead can also be relevant, but they differ considerably about the meaning of bolga. So some translations include belly dart, dart of the belly, or barbed spear, which makes sense given the like spines mm-hmm. coming out of it that, that we've talked about. Uh, it has also been translated spear of the bellows, body spear, bag spear, spear of swelling. Did you say bag spear or bad spear? Bagged. Oh. Like bagging your groceries. I feel uh, like that would make a shield less effective. Or a spear past Mac. I don't think he even noticed that he misspoke. If you put it in a bag. A spear, yeah. But, Okay. But here, and I quote a couple other translations, spear of swelling, an erect penis, a spear of the sack, penis and scrotum. Oh, now I understand bagged spear. Yes. Or quite literally, the gay bulge, which literally is just G-A-Y-B-U-L-G. Okay, so this entire time... Like, you've been telling the story. I've been going, like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to make a joke about the name Gay Volga. <laughs> that would be rude. But apparently, some <laughs> old scholars have already beaten me to it. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Indeed. So, I'm just sitting here thinking, who had the audacity? Actually, there's a footnote. I can tell you who had the audacity. Kieran Carson, who wrote a new translation of the uh, Toy Bakuling. In 2007. His translation is great, actually. Oh, so it's, so it's not an old scholar. It's a recent thing. It's a recent scholar who, who has called this the, uh, the gay bulge, which I hesitate to say this, but if you're a player in need of naming, you know, your weapon, this is an option. Spear, spear of swelling for all you bards out there. Yeah, I do um, like that apparently it is... Multiple people have interpreted this as a metaphor for Cucullin's dick. Yes, precisely. Uh, there's also a suggestion that there's a similar spear, like an Inuit harpoon, that is used as a throwing stick with a line in a float named after the air bladder, that is to say the bulg, which is tied to the harpoon by a long string and serves to facilitate its recovery from the water. Oh. Which also makes a lot of sense, given... That leg, you'll remember, sends the Gabolga downstream to Kukulun. Yes, he does. 
So he would need a way, like, how would this work? Like, you're sending a hefty chunk of a weapon downstream. Well, if it automatically already floats and it's made from an aquatic animal, yeah, you've got all of these associations. Yeah, and I mean, I know people don't think of it like this, but the, the Inuit and the Iris are not actually as geographically separate as we imagine. So no. the, the yeah. idea that, like, an Inuit weapon could find its way into Ireland or like the idea at least could be transmitted yeah. is not far fetched. Well, the the climates are also very, very similar as someone who has lived in South central Alaska and Ireland. The climates are very similar. They have uh, the geography is similar. Alaska's harsher, but if you get down into the more temperate regions, like along the panhandle, you know, you've got puffins, you've got basically the same wildlife, the, the hunting would be very similar. So it's a fascinating idea. And Peters explains that the main traits of the Gebulga are, and he's got a very long list, which he breaks down each part, but I'm just going to summarize by basically going through what the list is, which is to say a projectile spear used almost exclusively by Kukulin. It's also a martial feat, meaning it's the move itself of using the Gebulga, taught to Kukulin by Skathik, Ifa or a sea god, which again ties back to what it could be made from, used once per battle against very difficult foes, occasionally sent downstream by the charioteer, can be cast in shallow water, is frightening, accurate, sharp, strong, highly penetrative, thin, single-pointed when cast, but multi-pointed afterwards, reverse-barbed, white or bright, like a bellows, made from part of a sea monster, and venomous. Whatever that means. I have a couple questions. Okay. Did he use the phrase highly penetrative on purpose? I don't know, but it is listed. Okay. He chose it for a reason. <laughs> yes. Second, where's the information that's made from part of a sea monster? Where'd that come from? Let me find it. Stand by. The more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm like, it would not only make sense for like, some Irish explorer to run across like, oh, I saw people using the spear when I, you know, went over, ran into Greenland mm -hmm. at one point. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. Or since they float, maybe one washed ashore and they were like, let's make yeah. more of these. Right. Uh, so, quote, amid an extensive summary of traditions about the Gebulga, uh, Cecil O'Reilly's edition in translation, that's an Irish phrase, it was made from the skin of a monster out of hell. In view of other instances of pieste or beast in Irish sagas and folklore, the originating monster could well have been a sea beast, one from hell imagined as the ocean's depths. Mm -hmm. So he goes on and talks more about that. But it makes sense. See, it makes a lot of sense to me that the Gibolga would be coming from a sea monster or made of something or associated with the sea. Because if you remember how Grendel's mother is described... She's got all these fiendish, hellish elements, mm -hmm. and yet she lives in the bottom of this deep ocean, dark pond, swamp thing. Yeah. And so you get this weird overlap. And so I see the same thing here with, with his argument for the gay bolda. And he, I don't even think he talks about that connection at all. That's just something that I saw and thought, okay, this makes sense. Right. Because Grendel's mother is like a, she's a sea wolf and she rules the waters. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And she's a monster. She, you know, she's a fiend from hell. That's how she's yeah. described as well. So if the Gebolga is is depicted similarly, it would make sense that it's made from a sea monster. Right. And that tracks with both the uh, stingray spine and the whole bladder thing. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. So he goes on to say that stingrays typically inhabit the bottom of seas and rivers. Some, such as the common stingray, have a white, venomous, many-barbed spine enclosed in a skin sheath about one-third of the way down the tail, beneath which is often a smaller spine that grows to take the larger one's place. Furthermore, when wading in waters inhabited by stingrays, it is advisable to wear strong protection for the feet and lower legs. This is extremely good advice. My cousin stepped on a stingray once. He got <gasps> a nasty wound on his foot. Ooh. And Kukulin wears thick calf protection, which is pretty ideally, you know, suited for an encounter with such creatures. Most interestingly, the writings of classical authors testify to the knowledge of a spear tipped by a stingray's spine in the ancient Greek myth of Circe, Odysseus, and their youngest son, who slew his father with a spear tipped by a stingray's spine. I don't know this myth. This myth derives from Telegonia, an epic poem ascribed to Eugamon? of Cyrene. That poem is lost, but the story is mentioned in other classical works, among them the Bibliotheca attributed to Apollodorus. So if you want to read more about that, there's a whole section of that in this article. Information and stories from the east where the Gebolga came, it was not only possible that the source of information on stingrays so he says that some Irish people, particularly fishermen, may well have had first-hand knowledge of the fish, as stingrays are present in Irish and Scottish coastal waters and estuaries, where their numbers increase in the summer and autumn as they swim up from the Mediterranean. So I think it's fascinating that there's both a historical, like, mythical way that this could have come down, but also a very factual way. Yeah. And they kind of combine. So I think there's, I think this is a very strong argument and he concludes that, in summary, the evidence gathered in this article does not permit firm conclusions to be drawn about the original nature of the Gebolga. Uh, it offers little, if any, support for the popular modern interpretation of it as a lightning spear, like it was like Zeus shooting lightning, which he also addresses, which I don't get at all. Where would that come from? Yeah, again, it, it comes more from the Bolga term than anything else, but I don't think it fits the description. Medieval sources describe a throwing spear used in water and equipped with many barbs that appeared only after penetrating the victim's body, which strongly suggests that they were sprung and held in place by a retaining mechanism. Originally, or at least in the early stage of literary portrayal exaggerated for dramatic effect, the Gebolga may well, therefore, have been imagined as an advanced fishing spear or harpoon, a weapon with many reverse barbs designed to remain stuck within aquatic creatures. This could also explain why its exclusive use against champions in single combat was deceitful and monstrous violation of the principle of fear fair, which he goes into. But again, it kind of goes back to Kukulun's status as a hero. So that is a little bit more understandable than whatever the indigenous people were using. They're like screaming, yeah, you know, hurling weapons. Yeah, but I, for- I forgot about that. We got to. I've got to find out what that was. I don't know what they are, man. But I figured since we could identify this one, or at least we had a pretty good shot at what this one was, I wanted to bring that in. Also, weird names, and apparently you are not the only one who has... (laughs) Who was translating it as d***? Is that... that, Because that that was definitely one of the things you mentioned. Like, someone had, had it written as, like, penis and scrotum. Yeah, let me let me find it. Here we go. Because that's either ridiculous or a brilliant commentary on how this whole thing is a dick-waving contest. The Spear of Swelling. Spear of the Sack. 
are two other options. Or the um, Orked Spear. So... I mean, I... I feel like if you can use forked as a euphemism, there's something wrong somewhere. Yeah, that's true. So, oh yeah, I'll say they were all Vicar and Carson. So, uh, Carson's definitely going for the, uh, the penis imagery. Okay. Which, you know, I mean, I've heard arguments that, uh, the ripping off of Grendel's hand, right? Is it Grendel's hand or does Beowulf rip off Grendel's mother's hand? It's Grendel's hand. It's Grendel. Yeah, it's Grendel's hand. It's like, Ripping off his penis. So, I've read I've read arguments for that. That makes no sense. Oh, it, okay. It was it was a feminist paper that I really dis- didn't agree with, and it was like Beowulf rips off Grendel's hand as a as a notion of his masculinity. Oh, like over... metaphorically. Okay, I thought you yeah. meant literally. I'm like, no. Grendel reaches for him, and Beowulf grabs his arm. Like, yeah. Did you think? It, are you arguing that he reached with his? D- because I feel no, like that's no, not no, true. No, 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 like, ripping off a, ripping off his arm is, like, a metaphor for ripping off his dick, which, like, at that point, I think that the Anglo-Saxon poets would have been willing to just write that out. Yeah. So, I didn't really, I, I disagree with that interpretation of, of that one, but, um. Yeah, like, there, you there know. are definitely wounds described in medieval literature that are, supposed to be to sensitive regions but they usually just say like thighs or loins but right i've never right. seen arm used there no no so anyway uh so you know you have the license to interpret this as you will and my point here is that many people have translated this in many different ways and that apparently kieran carson has a dirty mind <laughs> There you go. So there's that one. Uh, there's also another article uh, by Donna Wong called Combat Between Foster Brothers in the Twin Bakuling. And this, I think, is very, very fascinating because she breaks down the moment where Maeve calls Ferdiad to battle. And so... She notes that he is trapped between the dishonor of defaulting on a contract and the betrayal of fighting a foster brother. And it's so obvious that his charioteer points it out. Quote, the combat is self-consciously staged by foes who manipulate Ferdiad from beginning to end. By now, fighting Kakulin is an impossible proposition to every sensible hero in the host, a point emphasized by the long lapse between uh, the Adid Luch and Cormac Mained, which are two of the different episodes covered within the twain, so it's broken down into little chunks. Since Maeve can no longer engage warriors from her army, the four provinces of Ireland must confer about hiring someone outside of their host. They hold special meeting to discuss who it would be, and nowhere is the candidate's will acknowledged, for after winning an election of which he is unaware, he is sent to the ford in accordance with the elector's wishes and regardless of his own. By extolling Ferdiad's traits, the electors simultaneously reinforce their confidence in him and build similar expectations in the audience, uh, because it is explicitly stated that both Ferdiad and Kukulin are matched in everything, except Ferdiad has this special, like, horned armor shield, mm-hmm. and Kukulin has the Gebolga. Aha! I thought this was a very nice point. In three sentences, she changes what Ferdiad initially swore to, which is vengeance on Cuculin for an unjust slander to his consent to fight Cuculin on behalf of Connacht. 
Her reminder that Feridiad is the son of the king of Connacht portrays him as the natural foe of Cucullin, whose mother is variously described as either daughter or sister of Concavir of Ulster. So, again, enemies by blood, as well as by honor. Mm -hmm. So she's twisting this, and I think this is a very, very good, close reading of Maeve's character, because it's not, you know, we've been poking fun at Maeve this entire time of like, oh my gosh, she's such a bitch, but she's a clever bitch. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you gotta give that... I, I do have some respect for her, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Her wiliness in mm-hmm. arranging that Ferdiad Kukulin fight, because that really was a turning point. It, yeah. It worked out well for her. Yeah, it changed the entire course of, of what was going on, because that's when Kukulin broke. So I thought that was a, a very astute observation. She also notes that fosterage relationships, no, it is... In a different article, I have another article on foster fosterage and kinship in Ireland. Uh, okay, so this is Peter Park's article, Fosterage, Kinship, and Legend, When Milk Was Thicker Than Blood. Here, I just have a couple of interesting quotes about Cucullin and his relationships. Um, the first is... Quote, Joseph Nagy pertinently commented on the narrative and symbolic functions of these adoptive linkages within the ranked segmentary order of Irish kingdoms. Cacullin is fostered by representatives of all segments of society, high and low. He is thus recreated in the image of society and is obligated to defend it in its entirety as payment for his youth. And this harkens back to the fact that his father is a god, his foster father, uh, well, he serves as the Hound of Cullen, who is a farmer. His mother is the daughter of a king. And he also has, like, he was sent away with Ferdad, Ferdiad to train. And those were by people in exile or outside of the country. So that is, like, the scope of who he has in his family. So he cannot escape obligation to anyone at this point. And then, again, from the article, quote, As Yasky indicated, the poignancy of foster ties persisting through political entities is portrayed by the primary narrator of the Toyn Makuling, Kukulun's foster father Fergus, beguiled by Queen Maeve to join her Connacht's forces against Ulster, yet who secretly assists his fosterling and demands fair play in his combat. But other foster kin of the hero, similarly seduced by Maeve's promises of conquered land or espousal of her daughter, agree to fight him. Cucullin regrets that they seek him out for combat and appeals to their bond as foster brothers and to their mutual affection. However, none of them retreats and all of them share the same fate. Their deaths highlight the destructiveness of warfare which rips through bonds of brotherhood and comradeship. So these, even though these were adopted brothers, it shows you that you know people like Fergus were willing to bend the rules. Mm-hmm. So I thought those were interesting points to add, and that's that's all I've got on the Toyne. Those are good points to cover. I I think they're pretty important when when you look at the the Texan whole. I'm absolutely going to read more about the gay Volga. It's such a weird weapon. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. You know, and a weird metaphor or whatever you want to make it. I'm sure there's more on it. In all of these, like, honor-based, combat-centric narratives, most of the weapons are metaphors anyway. This is true. This is true. I've I've heard so many arguments for this. In in the uh, Old Norse translation-like practice we're doing right now, we're translating chivalric sagas. 
And one of the ones we were doing was a translation into Old Norse of, I think it was, I don't know, French stuff. Yes. I want to say it was Kratian, but I might be getting things mixed Ooh. up. No, it was Kratian, because this was Percival. This was Percival Saga. Okay. And there was one line where they're like, they're, they're fighting out of honor. It just goes, goes like, and they both had stout, thick, long lances. And I'm like, that is, <laughs> the subtext is becoming text. No. <laughs> no. Do we, okay, have you ever heard anything like that, like, for a woman? Because I feel like in medieval texts, it's either just like, her breasts were gorgeous, or there's like no subtext there. Or maybe I'm just not reading it, or I haven't heard commentary on it. I don't know. I feel, mm, I don't know. Because we don't, we don't, we usually get euphemisms for their thighs. It pierced his thigh. Yeah. Or we get long lances. But for women, it's usually like, her face was shining and her bosom bright. And it's like, yes, she's got lovely tatas, we understand. <laughs> but I, there's not exactly, I mean, you got to remember that the Latin word for sheath is just vagina. Like, mm-hmm. there's no euphemism there. It's just the same thing. But you don't really see that in, in medieval texts, I feel like. Yeah, I wonder there's, if there's it's less poetic euphemism. Like, are we just not noticing them? Or do they think it's... Just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uncouth? Yeah, that's what I was going to like. Uh, it, would, it would be improper to... Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's the joy of Shakespeare, though, isn't it? Is yes. because when, you, when you've got the title of Much Ado About Nothing, you know, if a thing is slang for a man's, then nothing is slang for a woman's. So basically, the, the entire title of the play is Much Ado About Pussy. Yeah. Because that is, that is the entire joke of the play. So if Shakespeare had it and the Romans had it, then there's gotta be a middle one. I'm just, I just haven't seen it. I think there's some in Chaucer. Oh, there's gotta be some in Chaucer. Of course there's some in Chaucer. Oh, <laughs> in, I think the <laughs> Miller's Tale, we get the phrase, uh, the quaint thing. Oh my. <laughs> that, uh, is the etymology behind one of the swear words that I will not say out loud. Yes, I know which one you're referring to, though. Future Mac here. I looked it up, and it's actually the other way around. Quaint was being used as a euphemism for that word I won't say. It's just a wordplay substitution using a similar-sounding word. I guess the closest modern equivalent would be the rhyming slang version, Burke. But the point is... It's the other way around from what Past Max says. That makes sense. That makes sense. It's definitely there. I just think it's less pervasive. That's true. But I think it's also less pervasive in the way that women are also less pervasive in medieval texts. Yeah. Like, I think the reason that so much comes down to phallic symbols is because the writers are male. And that's what's on their mind. And they're like, well, I'm not going to write about, like naked women because that would be rude but like the 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 d- just kind of sneak in subconsciously <laughs> <sighs> insert mandatory sounds kind of gay to me joke wriggling along like leeches oh don't give me that imagery i don't need that imagery in my life oh that sounds that sounds like a really horrible 
medieval manuscript drawing. Yeah. Well, it, it like, came into my mind as soon as I said they snuck in, and I'm like, well, oh. I can't be the only one stuck with that imagery. Oh my gosh, because that's like the the medieval manuscript of those like ladies picking the picking the suck trees. I think someone at Kalamazoo had a pin of that a couple years ago, like an enamel that's, pin. That's still the greatest thing. Just wild. All right. Anyway, on that note, we started with pillow talk. I feel like we've ended with pillow talk. Yeah. A suitable, <laughs> a suitable end. It's- I'm gonna see if I can do more digging on on Maeve on her period. Yeah. Because that's, I'm I'm a little bit intrigued by that because it's so obscure. And if any of you know about euphemisms for lady bits, yeah, thank you, lady bits in medieval texts. Let us know. Yes. Because apparently we can't think of many, and that's mm-hmm. that's inequality is what that is, and we need to fix that. Yeah, you know. There's also, I was looking at different swear words to use in D&D, medieval swear words in particular, mm-hmm. and sard and swive are both the equivalent of the F word. I don't, I haven't heard sard, but swive is also in Chaucer. Yeah. Life of Bath uses it a lot. <laughs> so if you're looking for for a uh, PG or PG ish friendly version that you can use, there you go. Yeah, I think uh, swive is also related to swink, which means the same thing. But the literal translation is work, but like it's clear what you're working at. Mm-hmm. There's some good ones out there. All right. What say you? best dialogue (laughs) but the dialogue doesn't make sense none of the dialogue makes sense okay now we actually skipped this in part two because we couldn't couldn't come up with any dialogue that that made sense without you having to explain it first that's fair okay i think i think my favorite here is either like the horrible poetry of these charioteers or or when Fair Dad is, like, waving goodbye and going to his death. Maeve's like, don't you see your future son-in-law? And he's like, oh, is that what he's doing? Is that what's going on here? (laughs) That was pretty good. He's so done. He's so over this whole war. If that apple thing was a euphemism, I think it might qualify. (laughs) We'll count it. We'll count it. That's a good one. Oh, man. Okay. All Toprast. That's deaths. Well, Fair Diaz was pretty dramatic. Very dramatic. I think other candidates have to be the bulls. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty gruesome one. the random bystander who gets trampled by the bulls. True. True. I also really like the decapitation. Yeah. Oh, that on his was shield. good. Yes. That one's my favorite. Because, like, how badass is that? Because apparently the edge of your shield is so sharp. You know, you're just you just chuck it into the ground and you just launch yourself at it and you decapitate yourself. And then your head keeps berating people as it's yeah. as it is carried back. You know what? Yeah, that's the best one. That is there's <laughs> there's no there's no competition. That's the best one. Yeah. Bestiary. I think the bulls count for our bestiary. Yeah. Do we have any do we have anything else? I don't think we have anything else here. Coming up empty. Mm-mm. So just the bulls. Yeah, bulls. Grant me the Okay. 
What are we going to use for a D&D game? Stingray Spears. Yeah. There, there should be stats for them in every player's handbook. You know, Gygax had those like bulges and glaives and glaive guise arms and guise arm glaives and bohemian ear spoons. And he left out the Stingray Spears. And I think that was a mistake. Definitely a mistake. Plus, plus... You can, I feel like there's got to be like an extra stat where you, you thrust it in and pull it out and you can do extra damage. That's true. We There should be a mechanic barbed. for barbs. Yeah. We'll write it. Barb mechanics. Ooh, that would make using a spear in battle much more complicated because you have to be like, because then there's a challenge of, I have to get it out before I can use it again. True, but you could have a bunch of like light javelins that mm-hmm. you use like crossbow bolts. It's true. You know, could work. I feel like you can have an NPC who talks after death. Yes, especially if they're a head on a shield. Yeah, like decapitated head. Oh, a sword called Skin Destroyer. Yeah. Especially if it has some kind of magical effect that does more than just like it pierces skin like all swords do. But like, no, this sword, if it breaks your skin, it causes like something horribly wrong. Like to the more, rest more of necrotic skin. damage or something. Yeah, maybe maybe it spreads. Ooh, or it's like, all right. So I don't remember if we mentioned this when we talked about scurvy before, but when you have scurvy, your old <gasps> scars reopen. That's right. What if a sword did that? Oh, that's like some blood hunter magic right there. I think that would be fun. I love it. That's gross. <laughs> Yeah. I love that. That's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) I love body horror. What can I say? Let's see. I I am... It depends on your players, but I feel like it would be really interesting to do, like, period problems. That would be interesting, actually. It, It depends on your players, and it depends on your table, and what your players are okay with. You almost definitely have to be someone who has periods as a GM. If you don't have them, you probably shouldn't use them as a plot element. I mean, I'm happy for you to. Like, speaking as a lady, someone who does have periods, I feel like if you want to incorporate that, do it, but do your research. Yeah. You know? I feel like it's a very dicey area and it could go offensive really quickly if if, if, like, a, if a cis guy is trying to use periods in their game, it's like, yeah, you're going to get something wrong, or it's going to get Yeah, you know, that's true. That's true. I don't know. I just think, like, there's... That probably goes too far. I was going to say blood magic would be interesting, but that probably goes too far. <laughs> that, okay. <laughs> that class needs to exist. <laughs> Very powerful blood magic. You can only use it for, like, a few days each month. See, that is that is the right way to incorporate periods into D and D. Yes. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you oh, should write no. up that class. I'm I, uh blood witch. <laughs> oh my gosh! And then everyone's like, "What is what is this person's deal? Like, are they like a werewolf or something? How does this work?" And she's like, "Nah, man." <laughs> No, the moon thing is metaphorical. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no. 
Oh, no. That that would be interesting. That's pretty good. All right. What else have we got? I like the general idea of weapons made from sea monsters. I feel like... True. The idea of weapons that you make from monsters should be more of a thing in D&D. I don't know why it isn't. Well, it's like the it's like the fire chickens. Yeah. You know? I like that. I was reading like a, a thread a while back on a D&D forum... That's dating me because I don't even know if forums are a thing anymore. Kids these days. Cetera, I mean, Reddit's a forum. Oh, that's true. It counts. Also, to be clear, I'm only 31. I'm just old at heart. <laughs> <laughs> but I was reading a thread where they were uh, reading through and commenting on the whole, the entire 2E Monsters Manual. And there's a lot of like little bits and pieces and monster issues where they're like, and you can make this bit of the monster into armor. But like, there's not a source for that and that's that mechanic has almost completely fallen by the wayside and i feel like that should that should come back but more it totally has and it makes me so sad because it would be so much more fascinating to to be able to do that yeah i think so this is a great way to do that i also another thing i thought of was when either as an established like a pre-established thing um, are you familiar with the with the um, the rule of oh I know a guy? I'm familiar with the phrase. So somebody came up with this, and I don't know. It's it's floated around the, on the internet, so I don't know who came up with it originally or who had it as their home rule. But your any of your players at any time could say oh I know a guy if they were stuck on a plot point or on a quest, and then they roll to see whether the relationship with that person is a positive relationship or a negative relationship. And like, they don't necessarily know who it is, but Mm -hmm. the DM's like, okay, you've, you know, you've, you've phoned a friend. So then they get to deal with that. So something that you could do is have a pre-established relationship with an enemy. And there's one person who you've made a deal with, which is like Cucullin and Fergus. Mm-hmm. So you have a moment where either they're like, hey, man, you know, you've got a sword in my throat. Let me go just this once. Let me go just this once. And then you have to do the, the same for them later. Or you make that deal reversed. Right. And so then, then because that could either come in clutch later on in the campaign, or it could royally screw you over. Because you don't know when the DM's going to invoke that. I'm imagining... So- some of those, uh, it's some of those tables where with wild magic effects or supernatural consequences that have certain, uh, retroactive things could be like, mm. you know, like the ones that, that mess with the time stream a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah. Things have changed. You owe the villain a favor is like the, the, the role result on one of those. I don't know yeah. if I'm expressing that properly. No, no, no. It makes sense. Ooh, but I, I feel like that could be really, really interesting because then you can play with dynamics and it, and you could either do this as like one personal player's backstory, like for instance, like a rogue and they've wanted to kill this other person for a really long time and blah, 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 whatever. Or you could have it as, as a whole table rule, mm-hmm. but it depend, depends on how you want to play with that one. But I feel like yeah. that could be really interesting. Any way you can get the player owing the villain a favor is brilliant. Ooh, so good. But then again, you also have to have players who actually buy into the honor culture thing. Because I have had players and played characters who would just go like, yeah, I know technically I owe you a favor, but... 
See, this is why I don't understand why people get really frustrated at playing, like, lawful good characters. Because I think lawful good characters can be some of the most interesting characters to play. And Mm -hmm. if that's not your style, you don't have to do it. I've played, you know, chaotic neutral characters. I've played lawful good characters, whatever. But to to have a character stick by that honor system and have the rest of the table be sitting there like, if you just broke your code once... Just once, and they can't do it. Yeah, I especially think, if they're I think a it's fascinating. Yeah. Ooh. See, I I'm here for that. So. Yeah. If if you're a paladin of any lawful religion, you basically can't break your word, or you stop being a paladin. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they would have to uphold their favors. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think makes for a more exciting game. So play with that as you will. All right. How many ages hence? Shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? Well, there are still lots of measuring contests and pointless wars. This is true. There's also a lot of a lot of spousal relationships that are, <laughs> you know. Well, I have this and you have that, so. Yeah. I don't think we can blame else? any of that on the twin pakuling, but there's a no, parallel. No, no, there's there's a parallel there. I think there's some some of that honor culture is still there, and you and sometimes you see conflict between brothers of bond who are on opposite sides of something but that's that's very much less part of our culture now yeah and i feel like that's just that that's a a literary trope that goes way back mm-hmm, mm-hmm, true okay so not too much there yeah I'm, okay wait okay i got one. Oh. although this we may have mentioned this before the last unicorn has a red bow that's like supernaturally powerful the book uh, by Peter Beagle. I think it was also yes. a movie, but I didn't see it. Okay, okay, okay. I am vaguely familiar. Yeah, but there, there. it's been years since I read it, but I distinctly remember that near the end, there's a whole... Like, one of the big villains or the big monsters is a red bull with immense power, who's, I think, owned by a king. So Well, that maybe, would check out. Yeah, maybe that's where that comes from. Ooh, I like it. I like it. Probably. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. All right. And of course, I'm going to go back and edit the previous episodes we did on this and find out that I said exactly that thing already. I but, mean, probably. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What else have we got? Any final street smarts? Sometimes you should just stop playing by the rules. Yeah. 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 If the game is whack, just don't play. Yeah. Just walk away. Yeah. You know? You can walk away. Or you can go like, you know what? No. No. I will not guard you just because you asked nicely. Yeah. Like, you can say no. You can opt out. You don't have to keep throwing good after bad. Hold your boundaries. Yes. Sometimes self-care is saying no. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you're, you know, a massive hulked out monster right and sometimes self-care is killing Maeve while she pees yeah and or menstruates yeah whatever all of the above also maybe don't do that in the middle of a battle like i'm sorry it's okay to get a little blood on your legs yeah that's fair actually you're good so just keep carry on i'm sure people do it all the time true Although they don't power mills with their discharge, so maybe That's maybe true. a okay. special case. <laughs> maybe see a doctor about that, Maeve. Hmm. 
Okay. Any other street smarts here? Probably, okay. If you're gonna go watch bullfighting, don't stand in the way of the bulls. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty obvious one. Yeah, give give the bulls a wide berth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that about covers it. Yeah. Like, I feel like most of the lessons we take away from this is, like, sometimes you can just say, like, fine, doing this will shame me. Whatever. Sometimes shame is the right answer. Yeah. Sometimes you get more honor through being shamed, socially shamed. Actually, I'm going to say the the overall, like, overarching message of this whole thing is this is what happens when you care too much what people think about you. Truth. That is the major theme of this text. So if you take nothing else away from it, take that away, is that stop caring what people think about you because it leads to everyone dying. Yes. Precisely. Okay. Future Mac here. Another lesson that I think we should take away that occurred to me as I was editing the previous episode is just imagine how much better this would have all gone if, like, someone had decided, hey... Let's just drag Maeve and her useless husband to the guillotine. Everything would have turned out better. That's all I'm saying, and you can apply that idea to your own life as you see fit. We are not legally liable for any guillotining or guillotine-related injuries. Best moment. Best moment. I do think possibly my favorite part is the bulls immediately started fighting. Yes. That's like, did a someone good one. provoke that or did it just happen? From what I understand of the, in the text, the, the one bull got gored and then they stopped. And then Fergus was like, no, 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 no. Keep going. You're not supposed to lose. Oh. And then they, you know, went at it. Okay. The way I was imagining was they just saw each other and were immediately like, okay, well, we have to fight to the death now. Like, just like oh, this I get immediate it. recognition. <laughs> it's like Jay Gatsby. It's like, oh, yes, I need to die for the allegory. <laughs> We're just like, this is my evil twin. We have to yes, fight. We have to fight. There's no option. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. I think the other, like, my favorite one is just the utter weirdness of Kukulin coming upon Maeve and her being like, wait, 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 I need a favor. Yeah, and he says, and he starts by saying, no, and then she says, but my favor is that you defend my army. And he says, well, I guess I can do that. Like, that. what did you think she was going to ask that you were ready to say no to if you were going right? to say yes to that? Very strange. The court. Who else would you want in your court? Ah, I Who have an answer have? for this. Oh, I, you actually, do. I actually was thinking about it because for a little while I was thinking maybe I do want Maeve because I was admiring her wiliness yes. at sending like Kukulin's foster brother against him. But then I decided I need more warriors on my court, so I would like Kukulin's foster brother. Oh, whose name I cannot pronounce. Fair Dad. That's the one. Fair Dad. Yeah. Fairy Dad. Yeah. <laughs> That's so sad. That means that they're still separated because I have Kukulin and you've got Ferdiad. We've separated two married couples before. I think we can assume there's a visitation rights arrangement. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Ooh, okay. I want Conquivir because he did win. He did win the battle. He did. And you can't say he doesn't know how to have a good time. He, this is very true. Plus, like, he and Fergus can finally make up. Yeah. 
Oh, that's right. You know? You've got Fergus, too. I've got Fergus, too. So I was going to say Maeve, but I was like, okay, first off, she lost. Second off, she's a bitch. So I'm going to stick with Concavere. Yeah, We're coming up on the point where we need to decide how to uh, do our, like, equivalent to Saga Things quarter court. Yeah. I actually have right. some thoughts, but, like... Oh, good. We should sort that out later, because we've sure. been recording for almost three hours now. Yeah, right? Oh, my gosh. Final rating. Final rating? This section is much more engaging. Yeah, this was, this was a lot better than part two, which was just like, this is Kokolin as a kid, and this is him killing a bunch of dudes. Yes. I don't remember part three very clearly, but mostly I remember it involved the Morrigan, so I assume it was also pretty cool. The Morrigan was... He and or she and Kukulin fought, and because Kukulin didn't want to sleep with her. Uh, right. Yes. That, that was I mostly remember. that, and there was shape shifting involved. I'll go with a seven because I think it's pretty good. I think it's exciting. I also find parts of it infuriating. Yes, valid. I will. I'll match you there. I feel like that's a good a good number. Oh, good lord! That's how you spell concavere. Yep. <laughs> it's completely different in my head this whole time. Oh, I know. I know. These Irish names are the worst. Shout out to Dervla, who has helped me so much with spelling Irish words because her name is, is very difficult to spell. Hang on. I'm gonna yeah, I was going to say, I assume her lesson started with this is how you spell my name. Yep. That is how you spell her name. Dervla. That is, <laughs> that's just Dervla? But no, it's, it's Dervla. Dervala. Okay, that's a little Dervala. Because I know the yeah. BH is a V. Yeah. And then there's Donica, but, which is also a very difficult name to spell. And there's Aoife and Tai. I maintain that the either something was done very wrong, or the Irish language and the Latin alphabet are just not a good fit, and they should make up their own alphabet. They are not. They are not. I tried to audit one semester of Old Irish... And I gave up. It's such a difficult language. Other languages have their own alphabets. Make it make a new one that's more yeah. that fits your language better. I would agree, but then again, I I can't blame that on the Irish. I blame that on the English. So no, it's definitely the English's fault. <laughs> As can be said for so much of world history. So much. But like most of Ireland is now no longer under the English, and they are now free to make their own alphabet. And I encourage it. I think it's a good idea. Yes, indeed. Okay. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. For headache. Oh, this is from a Leech Book 1, Chapter 1. This is like right near the beginning. Okay. For headache, take blossoms of dill, seethe in oil, smear the temples therewith. For the same, take ashes of heart's horn. I think that's the actual antler, not like a plant called heart's horn. Okay. Mingle with vinegar and juice of rose. Bind on the cheek. I feel like that's more of a charm than anything, because I can't see that having a medical application. Yeah. Does dill help with headaches? I have no idea. Like, none of these seem like they'd work, because they're all external applications. Yeah. That's why, I mean, I understand, like, you know, cold compress on your head or something, mm -hmm. you know? But yeah. that seems a bit odd. Yeah, and there's one more. Okay. For the same, take a vessel full of leaves of green rue and a spoonful of mustard seed. Rub together, add the white of an egg, a spoonful that the salve may be thick. Smear with a feather on the side which is not sore. 
Yeah, the mustard's just going to burn the other side of your face, and then it's going to even out. Maybe that's the idea. Like, we're going to make... What really strikes me about this is apparently whoever wrote this only has headaches on one side at a time. I mean, some migraine sufferers only get it at one side or the other, but I am I, I usually just get them all over. Yeah, me too. Not oh. migraines. I don't suffer migraines, but when I have a headache, it's the whole head. Yeah, it's the whole head. Or at least like a band around the head. Like, there's not like this side is aching and this one isn't. I wonder if it means like, hmm. I wonder if this has anything to do with trepanning. Oh, that would be really cool if it did. And for those who are unaware of what this is, it was the horrific application of drilling a hole into one's head to let out the extra pressure and bad air. You come back here. Zoe is only calling it horrific so she can keep all that sweet, sweet trepanation for herself. Don't let her fool you. For legal reasons, this is a joke. Although apparently it wasn't that bad because there are, we have found skulls that have had that done to them multiple times and they're all yeah. various degrees of healed. So someone had that done and apparently thought it worked because they went back for it more. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are instances of it being used in modern medicine for very limited purposes, but yeah. still though, like... I've also heard a rumor that it gives you a permanent low-grade high, but I don't know if that's true or if someone just made that up. Well, that would explain why you go back more than once. Yeah, I mean, if, if that's true, then I totally understand why people are doing that all the time. They're like, I don't know. You're like, hey, man. If I have to spend my life cleaning up horse crap in a, on a step somewhere. I'm at least going to be high. <laughs> that's step with an E at the end, not a staircase. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> let's try Let's try and... Enjoy it. Make it a little bit more fun. Oof. Yeah, I mean, all right, there you go. Yeah, that's all I got. I wouldn't want to, like, because then, then I guess you're like, if you apply it to the other side of that part, you know, maybe it makes more sense. I don't know. I was thinking, like, maybe you're trying to bribe the other side of your head. Like, look at this nice ointment that the good side of my head gets. Don't you want to be like that side? There you go. Oh, gosh. Oh. Well, there we go. Got the toying done. Yes. Took took long enough. <laughs> it's finally complete. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, the Maniculum Podcast to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter at Maniculum and on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Editing this is going to be a pain because I'm going to have to go back and bleep out every time I said <laughs> <laughs> Including just there. Yeah. Oh, boy.